Hello and welcome to the Sala podcast. My name is Steph and today I'm catching up with artist Ash Tower in the upstairs studios at Adelaide Contemporary Experimental, or ACE for short. I just want to acknowledge that we are on unceded Ghana land and pay my respects to the Ghana people as the traditional owners of this land and these waters. Hi, Ash. Thank you for making time to chat today. Thanks for having me. I've been reading like lots of bits of biography that are attached to various projects that you've done, and I have no shortage of questions, but I really wanted to start with something that sort of isn't always captured in those official texts, which is what actually drew you to art making to begin with? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I actually can't remember a time that I wasn't going to become an artist, I think, or at least that I wasn't going to spend a lot of time making things. I think there was always that um, inflection as you start to finish school where you look towards maybe design or maybe architecture or those kind of allied creative professions where you can maybe have a little bit more of a stable (laughs) sort of professional life. Um, and I sort of tried them out and in work experience and bits and pieces and I, I just didn't like them. So I think it was, it was sort of, well, I guess I'm off to art school. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people can relate. <laughs> yeah. Um, and any particular medium to begin with or just knew that you had that creative bent? I think I drew the most as a kid. Yeah. Um, and in retrospect, I also did a lot of, um, a lot of kind of sculptural stuff and, and making and, and crafting, but I never really understood those to be kind of a, an art practice yeah. until I got to art school and sort of, you know, thought about them as aligned with that kind of drawing yeah. and that, that I did a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that learning the validity of materials mm. as you go, ah, okay. Yeah. This is, I'm already doing it. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's so good. Um, how, this is a tricky one, but I'm going to throw it to you. How would you describe your current practice in layman's terms? Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think it's kind of hard to start with materials because I'm generally pretty, I, I suppose, promiscuous materially. <laughs> um, you said it, not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it it's kind of starts with sculpture and installation, but I, I also um, I draw and I paint and I make prints. Um, I'm very non-committal, I guess, as opposed to my... <laughs> to my um, material investment. But I think the one thing that um, has followed me throughout my practice and and I've come to phrase it in lots of different ways over the course of my life is I'm always interested in knowledge Mm. and I'm interested in the way that knowledge is connected to culture and connected to um, uh, what we know about the world. And um, while it's kind of often relegated, you know, knowledge and knowing and the act of learning is really relegated to like this kind of cold institutional place, um, I find that it's actually a really rich um, story of human intent and human behavior. And I would say that the one thing that's always that, you know, the common thread that runs through my practice is that, um, it always comes from a place of research and, um, enjoying research and enjoying learning either new ideas or, uh, learning new techniques. And so I will often look to places like libraries and archives and museums, um, as these places that sort of make knowledge, um, not just store it, but are actually responsible for like sort of constructing it and giving it shape. Um, but I, and more recently I've come to, um, open up that understanding of knowledge to include lots of, um, lesser institutional practices as well. Um, so things like, uh, you know, science fiction or pseudoscience even, or, you know, spirituality or all these different things are, um, are different ways of knowing about the world. Mm. And they tell us a lot about, um, our humanity, I think, in how yeah. we, how we use them. 
That's so interesting to to bridge from, yeah, the classic, yes, museums, libraries, and then go, actually, knowledge is in all of these places as well. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. And so, yeah, would you say that the the medium often follows, like the idea comes first or the, the line of inquiry comes first and then the medium kind of makes sense afterwards and falls into place? Yeah, absolutely. The medium, um, I, I tend to usually employ media that have an established language or an established history with the ideas that I'm investigating. So if I'm looking, if I'm looking archaeologically, then I will often try and emulate the kinds of materials that I used at the artifact in the artifacts that I'm looking at. Um, I focus a lot on, you know, when I'm looking at libraries or museums, for example, I'm looking a lot at bookmaking and papermaking and the way that word encounters page and, you know, those different things. And so the medium kind of always follows the idea. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm just picturing all the clear books put back in the shelves. I do like that work. Can you quickly just explain that one for us? Oh, that's an old one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was uh, Postcards from the Bibliopolis, which was actually art school work way back in, I think, maybe 2013. (laughs) Um, But it's still a very fond one. I... um, uh, that work was made in response to the Barsmith Library, which is the library at the University of Adelaide. Um, and I was often, I was going through this um, library and, and sort of just wandering the shelves and um, thinking about the library as a site, um, you know, frequently or, or as a piece of, as a field. So often when we think about research, we think about, you know, back at the, you know, back at the institution, which is home and then outside, which is field. And so we do field work. Um, but I was interested in this space of, you know, something within the institution, but actually considering it as a, as a kind of wild, as a kind mm. of untamed <laughs> or uh, untamed or variable kind of ecosystem onto itself. And so when I was walking through the library, I sort of encountered these like handwritten notes that people would leave in the stacks and things like that. So the, the old system, or I suppose a system that's a little bit archaic now is you would um, go into the library and search on one of the terminals that was in the computer, uh, that was in the library, and there would be, um, you know, like a little tray of scrap paper and a pencil that you would, you know, note what you needed and then take it into the stacks Mm. to find. And people would often leave those bits and pieces in there. Um, And I became interested in those things as um, (laughs) quite resounding, like artifacts of intent in their own right. And they wouldn't just be, you know, call signs for books either. They would be like shopping lists or letters or, um, and they would be on the letterheads of, you know, pharmacies and, you know, like lawyers and like all these really um, rich bits of information to find in this vast network of information. Um, and so I gradually started collecting them and noting where I found them and then I would resin embed them into like a larger book-sized block um, and working with the library re-embed those books, the resin books, back mm. into the library into where the I found field. them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and the library was really wa- wonderful as well about, you know, giving them radio frequency tags so they worked like library books wow. and, you know, um, they kind of circled through the system um, as not for loan books and you know I got most of them back and then some of them are still out there in the world which the, is kind yeah, of amazing wow. <laughs> that's so cool um I, yes I do get the impression that you're very comfortable in a library setting <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. comes through loud and clear um I did have a question specifically pertaining to knowledge systems but I think you have yeah already touched on this being a sort of um you know you've got that interest in research and um you have you are very much an academic you've got your phd and you teach and lecture and all sorts of things don't you have i got that right yeah yeah so i um i think i i got my phd at the end of 2018 at the start of 2019 and and somewhat related to the practice it was on the relationship between arts and sciences and Mm. and how they and how artists and scientists work together in the laboratory and as much as that document sort of 
looked in a very different direction, I think, from my practice now, the one thing it did or the one great gift it gave me was that it really unseated Western imperial science as the predominant way of knowing about the world. Um, learning what I did over my PhD was really a process of learning the ways in which knowledge is constructed. Mm -hmm. And so some of those like nascent or really latent ideas that were in my practice prior to my PhD, you know, I was looking a lot at systems and the ways we organize knowledge, you know, the PhD sort of blew open the doors to that and made me realize that there isn't only one way of, or one correct way of knowing about the world. Mm. Um, and that, you know, really caused a crisis in my practice almost of realizing <laughs> this thing that I was like wedded to is like actually not, um, not so monumental and monolithic as it, as it makes itself out to be. Wow. Um, that's and, huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think there are, um, sometimes I think PhDs, you know, contribute a lot to knowledge and a lot to the world. And other times I think they just, um, really serve to completely undermine the reality of the person that gets them. <laughs> Mine was the second one. Um, but I think you do quite nicely make room for acknowledging, I don't, want, don't know what the right term is, but um, referring to works that memorialized um like the scientific papers that were rejected is that mm. the right word and and still acknowledging that they existed and um can you speak to that body of work yeah <laughs> yeah so that was a work called um studies of nature i think that was maybe 2017 and and i became really interested in i became interested i was you know just entering academia, just starting to put papers up and just starting to have them knocked back and becoming really interested in the ways that, um, you know, all of this labor was poured into these, um, you know, really from the outside, quite dry written documents. But once you become familiar with them, they can actually be quite rich things. Mm. Um, and so I took, uh, you know, I, I did like a survey of three or four years of the Journal of Nature, which is this kind of massive umbrella name for a group of scientific journals. Um, and I looked at all of the papers that have been retracted from the Journal of Nature. So instead of the ones that would be rejected, which was probably in, in the scope of thousands across the oh, years, okay, yeah. um, papers that were published and were then taken down. Right. Um, as a, and, and sometimes I think people attribute a retraction of a paper as being quite a sinister thing, like it's been falsified or there's something fraudulent in it. But a lot of the times it's... Um, kind of either honest mistake or the fact that it hasn't been able to be reproduced by the rest of the scientific community. Right. Um, but I became interested in these papers that sort of went up and came down as a kind of science fiction in their own way. Like they still describe the world, mm -hmm. not necessarily in a way that science lacks, but they are still artifacts of labor and love. And mm -hmm. um, if anything, the fact that there are so many of them boils down to the scientific community's kind of great efforts to sort of uh, keep it a high standard of kind of <laughs> kind of scientific activity but one of the things that happens when you retract a paper is that the publisher uh, issues a statement as to why it's been retracted and sometimes those are quite salacious things <laughs> um, and other times they're quite earnest things of this um, uh, you know this figure was accidentally or we accidentally used a um, a version of this figure that had been color corrected mm. which is you know as much as that seems like a uh, a really uh, insignificant thing it does invalidate the paper in the in the eyes of the journal and so I um, took the citations for all these papers and listed them on an honor board that you might see associated with you know sporting veterans or mm. uh, war heroes or all those sorts of people and uh, just as a way of memorializing them and giving them some sort of um, they had a space to occupy I guess after definitely being, yeah and I think that you know 
the scientific community, you know, it has a um, it has a mandate to uphold those really high standards. But I think that the wonderful thing about art is that it has the free potential to acknowledge those things, even though they are sort of cast aside by the mm. scientific community. Yeah, yeah, I think that's quite a strong work, and um, you know, the it, the the board is really commanding. Um, you know, quite tall, um, and yeah, perfectly. Is that is it gold lettering what's the yeah yeah, yeah the yeah. whole down to a t <laughs> yeah i've become like i think one of the things that has started to emerge over the last few years is my like absolute fascination with this kind of curious australian rsl club aesthetic <laughs> where i mean we'll probably get to talking about architecture eventually because it's where all my <laughs> discussions seem to end up but the ways in which you know australia is just i spent a lot of time in rsl clubs as a kid growing up in regional western australia and um I was always so fascinated by, you know, like the the kind of unadorned cinder block RSL club with these beautiful, elaborate, um, crafted honor boards and sort of honor rolls that sort of hung uh, in the space. And I was so interested in the the absolute kind of um, jarring contrast of those visual languages. <laughs> it can be quite stark. Can't yeah. It? <laughs> I think the culmination of my career will truly be making an exhibition for an RSL club. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. I will take you up on asking you about architecture. Um, I think we all knew it was going to go there. <laughs> so um, you, you also teach architecture, but it comes through in your work heaps. I imagine you're just super passionate about it. Is that fair to say? It's a really funny story. I think the teaching led to it finding its way in my practice. Oh, so, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, so when I started my uh, PhD, I took on a little bit of work just tutoring at the university. Um, and they didn't need art theory tutors. They actually needed art architectural history tutors. And, you know, the story of architecture runs quite parallel to the history of art. So with a bit of extra studying, I agreed to take it on. Um <laughs> And I've been teaching or tutoring rather architecture for about six years now. Um, and I think it's just, it's a really convenient or a really useful parallel language to art history. Um, they often follow quite similar movements and quite similar themes, but the nature of architecture as being somewhat utilitarian, but also maybe sometimes a little bit more survivable than art in the kind of historical record, um, makes it a really useful kind of parallel current to draw from. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, I often describe architecture within my practice as a kind of vehicle for meaning. And what I mean by that is that it's just a good way of giving form to a certain set of ideas that run underneath the practice of Western architecture. Um, and so, yeah, the more I sort of, you know, taught this and learned more about it and studied up on it, I started to realize how much potential it had in a creative practice. So cool. Oh, I just assumed it would have been the other way around. There you go. Um, and then I think we see drawing on some more recent work that you've done. I know I've cast back to some older stuff, but um, you had a show recently at Floating Goose called The Burning of Vision, um, which I think is fair to say brings some of that architectural language. Um, although also tabletop gaming. Um, do you want to talk about that show a little bit? Yeah. So I think this is maybe one of the reasons I think I – uh, sort of partition my practice into projects is because it maybe enables me to stretch out a little bit further than I otherwise would than if I had one kind of clarified statement for all of my all of yeah. my work. Um, the Burning of Vision was a really 
fun, really frightening, really interesting show um, that consisted of a lot of cardboard sculpture. Um, and it was, it was deliberately riffing on Baroque architecture, um, particularly or specifically, which is, you know, the sort of um, the architectural technique that arises um, from the Catholics uh, in, you know, Italy in the uh, for the purposes of a counter-reformation to contest this schism that happens in the church at that particular period in history. And so it's pure theatrics. It's all about bums on seats. Mm -hmm. It is creating a celestial grand spectacle that is so... Um, revelatory to people who see it that they can't help but believe that the Catholic way of knowing about the world is the only way of knowing about the world. And so while it is theatrical, it's also extremely persuasive. <laughs> um, but it's also extremely high art, you know, and it, it, it appeals to the, um, the metaphysical, the celestial, like all these issues of beyond the world, beyond life, these massive ideas. And I sort of became interested in what might happen if it were crammed into the sort of crude visual language of tabletop gaming and terrain building. Um, and I think like most people my age with my upbringing sort of went through a, like a bit of a tabletop gaming phase um, where you would build terrain and model foam and cardboard and, you know, flock with little paint figurines. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was sort of interested in how this like really kind of high art architectural language could be rendered in these really crude materials. Mm. Um, and so it came from a lot of, there were a lot of um, ideas that the show picked up on the way, but that was the original premise of it. Um, and so, yeah, the exhibition culminated in quite a large cardboard installation of all of these different, I call them tombstones, I think, because they have an obvious relationship to tombstones being this kind of large, um, flat faced thing with a sort of pointed top, but also because um, I was interested in the role of, they sort of seemed to want text on them, like they, because they, they were these, you know, tombstone things that were expanded to the scale of honor boards. And so they seem to want this text on them, but also they connected back to this kind of Italian Roman tradition of writing on tablets. And you know, well, that's not, um, that's like a, a quite a storied thing in Western archeology. span And so um, the resulting work was really supposed to feel quite overwhelming um, in the way that a Baroque cathedral might, but uh, also quite flimsy <laughs> in the way that a teenager's tabletop gaming efforts had resulted in. What a great two things to try and marry. <laughs> While we're uh, picking apart works that have caught my eye I really have to ask about the work is it via via purifico via purifico yes yeah. oh fantastic uh I have to ask what does Baz Luhrmann's 1996 film Romeo and Juliet have to do <laughs> with Squaresoft's 2001 video game Final Fantasy <laughs> in short nothing <laughs> excellent but I think that that was the purpose of the, the marriage yeah yeah <laughs> um not unlike the sort of quite jarring influences that were behind the burning of vision. Mm. Um, I was interested in, well, first of all, I just have a deep and abiding love for that film, the <laughs> 96 Romeo and Juliet. Who doesn't? Um, Pretty Claire iconic. Danes Claire Danes and Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, and originally the show was just going to be about that film. Oh, okay. Um, in particular, it was going to be about the set mm. of that film that has a particular story behind it. So there's a scene in the film that's set on this kind of Miami beach style 
uh, scene. And there's like a ruined stage set called the Sycamore Grove Theatre, which is a reference to the original Shakespearean text. And the character of Mercutio's death scene plays out on that stage. And it's it's Lerman making a filmic reference to the original theatrical play of of Romeo and Juliet. But um, an interesting piece of trivia about the movie is that you know, after they'd recorded Mercutio's death scene, you know, where he dies and then curses, you know, a plague on both your houses and then a storm rolls in in the film and destroys the beach and everyone runs away. Um, the filming location in Mexico City was actually hit by a typhoon after they filmed it and destroyed that set. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so there was a kind of curious Art Meets Life thing that happened where that storm sort of punched through the different fictive layers of the film um, and so the whole show began with the drawing that's in that show, which is underneath the Grove of Sycamore, which is a, an attempt to forensically reconstruct the stage set, given that there are no drawings available. Uh, and so I sort of had to work with a few surviving, like the scenes in the film and then a few surviving bits of Super 8 um, footage from the production material to reconstruct this thing in a drawn architectural diagrammatic form. Uh, and from there, I sort of was thinking a lot about ruins and a lot about the ways that ruins have been used in the history of Western architecture. And, you know, particularly in something like the neoclassical tradition, ruins are always a callback to a previous time. Mm. Ruins are used architecturally to evoke a lost golden age or some kind of great knowledge that has been, um, that has been lost or subsumed by, you know, the ebb and flow of time. Um, And that, drew me to another formative influence, I guess, in my childhood, which was this video game called Final Fantasy, which I think not many people know about. It's it's a category of games called um, Japanese role-playing games, um, which is, you know, just a particular style of video game that comes out of Japan. And it's tra- it was translated to the West in 2001. And um, it follows a kind of uh, a similar kind of hero's journey arc that Romeo and Juliet does there's a you know a lead romance as well but it also takes place in a world that seems to be cyclically destroyed every 10 years and so everyone lives in the ruins of a precursor civilization and so I sort of became interested in the way that the ruin connects the two texts but also there's a particular there's a pivotal scene that plays out in the video game not unlike the (laughs) the one that occurs in Romeo and Juliet where the two characters stare out over a sunken arch that's slightly offshore mm. and it looks quite similar to the arch or to the, the sunken theater in Romeo and Juliet. And so that quite flimsy connection <laughs> became the, the basis for the entire show, which is essentially imagining a kind of speculative world in which these two fictional works actually take place in the same universe. Yeah, wow. That's so cool. <laughs> and the more and more I sort of make, uh, the more I realize that I, I really place. I, I really enjoy placing a lot of weight on these quite flimsy connections. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then the work of the practice is to try and expand them out into a kind yeah. of rich logic of their own. Yeah. Well, I suppose once you start looking, you're like, oh, I'm finding more ways I can connect this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And so the work was almost about trying to build an evidence base for this insane theory. <laughs> and and I was also thinking a lot about how that fits into these previous you know, themes of knowledge systems and things. Yeah, that I, it does tie back. <laughs> yeah, it, it presents a it presents a logic of its own. It presents a world of its own, and I think that's what is draws me to this this kind of speculative angle, which has been emerging recently. Um, just because they, you know, just because it's speculative, it still presents a logic about the world, which is not too dissimilar from the way that we report the world through science or through fiction. Yeah. 
Amazing. Now, coming to more of the present, I think we've been quite chronological. Um, one of your most recent uh, things that you've been doing is you've had a studio space at Adelaide Contemporary Experimental for, is it most of 2022, most yeah, of the year? Yeah, yeah. for the year. Um, tell us how that's been. It's been great. I haven't had um, a designated studio space since I left art school. And oh, it's okay. It's been really wonderful to get back and sort of claim a space for making again because mm. um, you know everything has just occurred on the kitchen table and you know <laughs> in the just absolute kind of frantic mess of life um, and it's really nice to have a designated space and really also important to have time to think about my work in larger timescales as well like there's a there's a designated place for the practice mm. and it doesn't have to work with the cycles of home and the cycles mm. of funding and the cycles of semesters and all those sorts of things so it's been a really significant opportunity as well to work with Megan Robson, who's a curator at the MCA, but who has been working with ACE this year to sort of mentor myself and the other studio artists towards this kind of studio's 2022 exhibition, mm. which I suppose is the culmination of everyone's work this year and, and the things we've been working towards. And how many of you were there in the studios this year? There are five of yes. us. So um, aside from me, there is also Chelsea Farquhar, Danny Reynolds, Shay Duong and Cecilia Tizard. Um, and it's been really wonderful to get to know them as well and, and bounce ideas back and forth. I think we're all really fast friends now, which is, is <laughs> just great. an awesome thing to have um, coming from a home studio and where you just work silently into the night. And <laughs> it can get a little dark sometimes. <laughs> oh, cool. And so, yes, Studios 2022 is the show that has culminated. So everyone's got work represented in there. Um, is it all recent like work that has been built over this last 12 months? Yeah. So um, fortunately, Ace was in a position to be able to commission new work for the show that's downstairs this time. So the the, the offerings that are in the studio show are all new work that have all been made this year in response to the different investigations that people have been awesome. undertaking. That's great. And uh, while we're talking about it, what are the dates for the exhibition? Uh, it runs from the 12th of November to the 17th of December um, and 2022, <laughs> yes. Um, shout out to those of you listening from 2023. <laughs> we made we made it, everybody. This is a ruin of uh, the yeah. year before. <laughs> um, Excellent. Yeah. And can you talk about the work that you've got in the show? Yeah, so the work that is in the show downstairs is kind of the first iteration of an idea that sort of came to me when I was drawing, um, spending a lot of time drawing the theatre in the last <laughs> work, in the last body of work. Um, I've been really interested in or a long time companion, I think, in my academic life has been the history of technology and looking at the way that technology tells us a lot about the cultures and the histories from which it arises. And I'm not just talking about technology in terms of iPhones and things, but technology in terms of, you know, stone tools like shipping, like, you know, all those kind of expanded built things that enable us to sort of control our environment and work in the world. Um, and I've got a long standing interest in archaeology as well. Um, but I was thinking a lot about specifically the materials of lead and glass and how they have a really long archaeological legacy, like they um, exist quite far back in the historical record, but also they're extremely relevant materials today for a number of things. And 
um, one of the things that was kind of emerging, maybe this was just because of the stuff that I was watching when I was um, making, watching, listening to when I was making the previous exhibition, it was it was a lot about nuclear technology and and um, nuclear weapons, um, and you know, following this kind of premise of how do I draw, how do I use my practice to draw together these two kind of um, quite distinct aspects of history and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to sort of look at the materials of lead and glass and use them as a way of connecting our contemporary understanding of nuclear technology and what that tells us about modern history and modern life with the archaeological uses of lead and glass and how that tells us about historical cultures and times. And so one of the historical uses of lead um, has been as a writing implement. You know, it's quite a soft, supple metal that supports the written language quite well. But it's also been used historically to line coffins. Mm. Um, And the reason being is because it's so soft and supple, it enables it to create a a seal, um, essentially sort of preserving the remains of um, people who are interred inside it. It's a historical tradition. It goes back. Actually, I don't even know how far it goes back, but um, it, it lives on today in the way that actually the, the British royal family is still buried in lead-lined coffins. Wow. So if you look at the footage of um, Diana's funeral, for example, you'd see 10 pole bearers straining under the weight of oh, what's yeah. actually a quarter-ton coffin. Um, but the, um, the other use for lead-lined coffins is in um, nuclear accidents um, because the... Oh, of yeah, because the victims of nuclear accidents, uh, their bodies are still radioactive. And so by burying them in lead-lined coffins, you're essentially containing that radiation. Wow. Um, this is such dark information. It really is. <laughs> oh, and I think that's been a real challenge of this work is to look at it from, you know, the the, the, <laughs> the inevitability of looking at it from a purely historical perspective, um, because that's where I depart from. But then it draws on, you know, it touches life so much that that actually becomes quite sinister. Mm. And I think a bit of that shines through in the arch- in the artifacts downstairs, though hopefully it's not too overwhelming. <laughs> Amazing. I definitely have to go back and sit with that work again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But if my work becomes too overwhelming, just look over at Chelsea's acrobats and it'll all be okay. Oh, they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> There's a nice balance in that space for sure. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. And where can people follow along with your next projects and what you're up to? Oh, well, I'm on Instagram. You can follow me at uh, ash.tower. And um, that's where people can stay in touch with all the sort of zany things I'm getting up to. And it's also got links to everything else that I do. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thanks for letting us pick your brain. And, um, yeah, see what you do next. Thank you. (laughs) 